You're listening to the Supertalk podcast, produced by the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, shaping profit to member super. Hello and welcome to Supertalk. My name is Tyrell Mills and today we're taking a look at the Chinese equity market to see what opportunities there are for Western institutional investors. No longer an emerging market, China's equities have forged ahead, lifted up by a sprawling middle-class society that is tech-savvy, has an enormous appetite for consumer goods, and is also spending big on health and education. Despite that, there's still apprehension from Western investors to explore the Chinese equities market. So we have Rubico's general manager and head of research in China, Zhe Lu, to help us navigate quite a large topic, address some of the barriers, and outline some of the opportunities in a market that is set to grow in a big way over the next decade. And yes, today we have with us Head of Research China from Rebecca J. Lu. Jay, are you with us? How are you going? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Thank you. How very are you, Tara? I'm quite good. Thank you very much for making a bit of time to sit down with us today. I suppose, firstly, uh, just for those unaccustomed or new to Chinese equities and Chinese equity markets, do you just want to give a quick overview of A shares and H shares and how that works? Because I feel like that's a bit of a unique system happening in China? Yes. So if you look at the Chinese companies, uh, they are generally publicly listed in three main markets. Asia's companies are traded on uh, Shanghai and Shenzhen stock exchanges in China, often also referred as onshore market. H shares are the group that trade on Hong Kong stock exchange, as well as we often heard the words ADRs that uh, mostly traded in the United States and other markets. So the size of the Asia market actually is roughly 10 trillion US dollars already. It's the second largest market in the world. The Asia market actually accounts for 70% of the market capital of all Chinese listed companies. So it offers even more diversification potential than the offshore H shares. Now the market is still relatively closed with only three access channels right now for foreign investors. Um, they are QFI, is a qualified foreign institutional investors, RMB-based QFI, and the StockConnect. Now, the Asia market has a low correlation with the global equity markets. One reason is that the market has been closed to, to international investors and then not move along with the global sentiment. Another important reason is that they're still driven by local retail investors who account for about 80% of the total trading volume. Now, as China is gradually opening up this market, driven by the MSCI inclusion, it's uh, now it's too big to ignore for global investors, and that they should be part of a strategic core allocation. However, we think the best way to invest is through active investing, because the large population of retail investors in the Asian market tend to be more speculative, and this kind of behavior leads to market inefficiencies, which open up opportunities for active investors for alpha generation. Given the asymmetrical information in China, as well as the language barriers, we believe on-the-ground research also offers advantage in finding companies with a high alpha potential. What are we seeing at the moment in regards to the AA shares around the opportunities for Western institutional investors? Has it, I mean, you said that there was three access points. Has this broadened at all? Yes, I think the access channel has become more and more uh, open. And also, eventually, I believe these three access channels will become more one. 
Um, but each year, as a market has has a offer a great set of investment opportunities. It, at the same time, it is also a relatively young market that is gradually but surely maturing and opening up. So we like the, the some long-term opportunities in themes such as a consumption upgrade driven by the rising income and the bulging middle class in China, industrial upgrade driven by high-end manufacturing, technology innovation driven by the rising R&D spending and the entrepreneurship in China, as well as the structural reform themes driven by government policy support. So those are the areas we like to focus on uh, as a foreign investors. There's quite a bit to get stuck into there. We'll kind of keep it brief, but one thing that I'm interested in is the, you said the bulging sort of, or the growing middle class. Do you, do you want to talk a bit more about what kind of equities we're see, uh, are seeing a boost from that? Yeah, so China's middle class is around 400 million. You know, that drives uh, consumer spending growth and expected to reshape China's consumption. And the number actually will continue to rise due to China's plan to increase urbanization rate. And those people, they are enjoying a sharp income growth, very confident about their financial future. And and in contrast to the generation uh, preceded them, they are willing to spend more of their earnings on services, premium brands, and technology. We see several interesting trends uh, for their consumption behaviors. One is a premiumization. So China's uh, middle class, you know, continues to seek out upgraded goods that serve to improve their lifestyle. They're spending more on premium goods, doing it across the board. Uh, we see that in cosmetics, food beverages such as liquor, milk, infant formula, or even in pet food. The second one is that there is a growing preference for domestic brands. We see the search uh, on, on our local search engines website uh, for domestic brands. You know, among the uh, total brand searches rose from around 40% 10 years ago to now 70%. And the local brands in, in consumer electronics, uh, apparel, automobile, cosmetic, food, beverage, saw growing interest for these uh, middle-class consumers. One reason is that the consumer is getting more sophisticated, educated. They don't blindly prefer foreign brands anymore. The other reason is that the domestic brands are generally becoming the, uh, the, the top choice as the quality improves. In general, domestic brands are attracting more high-income consumers in China, and they are also more adaptive to local social media and e-commerce channel, which help them penetrate further in those lower-tier cities. Another important uh, uh, trend is the healthy lifestyle. You know, middle class right now is generally spend less than 50% of their income on necessities, and they're willing to spend more on healthy diet, lifestyle experience, wellness, such as participating in gym training, etc. Education uh, of their children is also a very important uh, uh, item in the middle class uh, Chinese parents. You know, they want to provide their children with a high quality education, and uh, you know, education expenses actually make a large portion of the income expenditure of the households. Chinese parents are strongly believing in education, which bring um, their children social distinction and better career opportunities. So those are the uh, area we like to uh, look for uh, investment opportunities. Well, I 
think we're a little over five minutes in, so this is somewhat of a bit of a record. It's gone this long without me asking about COVID-19. Usually every conversation starts with how has COVID-19 affected things. Uh, but how, how indeed has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted the economy in China? And I suppose, are we seeing any particular economic trends emerging that, that are, I suppose, raising opportunities for investors? Um, yes, I think COVID-19, of course, brought up on unprecedented challenges to China. You know, the, the pandemic initially led to both supply shock and the demand shock in the economy. But China, as the first country got affected, also is the first country to start recovering from it. So as for now, we see the supply side is mostly back to normal. Um, in the second quarter, when China had a V-shaped recovery, the key driver was manufacturing. And going forward, we think the consumption recovery will be the main driver. We already start seeing you know, high-frequency data showing the you know, consumption required really on track in August so far. And on the macro policy side, China's monetary policy will continue to be more targeted and more supportive. But the fiscal policy will um, pull the weight in the second half, be more proactive to ensure ample funding uh, to support the social welfare and the labor market. Also, will continue to support investment in new infrastructure, new urbanization, and some key projects. Now, recently, a Chinese government emphasized on the theme of a domestic circulation, indicating greater boost for domestic demand. But I believe uh, it doesn't really mean cutting yourself off from the rest of the world. I believe China will continue actively engaging outside the world and opening up. There are several trends we'd like to highlight here um, during the COVID-19. From the consumption side, one is the acceleration of digitization. Now, China has a very high penetration rate of mobile phones users, and its e-commerce infrastructure is very advanced. During the outbreak, the e-commerce companies, online retailers, and those providing internet-based entertainment have benefited from such move to online, and they are doing very well. We also see brands are accelerating their digital power, the omni-channel strategy, developing social commerce to monetize social attention, engaging with uh, this consumer. Um, the second trend is uh, the reshoring of overseas consumption. Chinese consumers actually have spent a lot of money overseas, roughly 260 billion US dollars a year on luxury goods, travel, and education. With the travel restriction uh, due to the COVID-19, we see a large portion of such consumption is returning to home market. Chinese consumers been moving back onshore to spend what they typically do on overseas trips. The third important trend I want to highlight here is China's pursuit for self-reliance for its economic development. As U.S. tension and the global pandemic increased external risks, the relative opportunities are in our industrial upgrade and technology innovation themes. Right? One good example is, is new energy vehicle industries. China has the world's largest EV market, about three to four times that of the U.S., and I believe the gap will continue to grow even bigger. China's EV supply chain is complete, as we have leading players in upstream materials and middle stream uh, components, such as batteries. So the government is also pushing to build out the charging infrastructure. So this kind of supply chain is more resilient in a time like, like this. Yeah, I was definitely going to ask about the online consumption boom that would have happened during pandemic, but you definitely hit that right on the head. Uh, presumably, it's quite similar around the world, but like you say, with the, mm. with the huge uptake in mobile phone use, uh, and the big reliance on it, it's definitely going to drive uh, e-commerce and online online buying, which would 
definitely seeing uh, results from, I suppose, during the COVID pandemic. I suppose just before we get onto ESG, it, do you want to talk through any of the sort of perceived barriers or what do you think are maybe one or two of the main perceived barriers from Western investors who might be looking to get into the Chinese market or who kind of understand that there is, maybe they're not uh, invested enough in China, but perhaps have some apprehension. Do you know, uh, are you familiar with any of those? Is there, Does any of that stand out to you? Yeah, um, as we communicated with our clients over the last few years, we realized, realized the, the one of the um, thing that holding uh, institution uh, international investor back is to worry about uh, the corporate governance issue in China. And I have to admit that the the ESG uh, scores for Chinese companies are relatively low. So that really relies on the more underground research and uh, to 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 avoid such risks. But overall speaking, I think uh, I still see this is a very promising trend because. ESG investing is still at the very early stage in China, which means there's a number of hurdles for investment managers. First of all, you know, list the Chinese company relatively have low awareness of ESG concept. Secondly, although more than half of Chinese listed company now publish annual, you know, sustainability reports, most of them treat them just a basket taking exercise. And there's also lack of an overarching policy framework to guide the sustainability investing and to standardize the company disclosure. Uh, the community of investing in Chinese company also does not have a collective voice or to demand more ESG-oriented management. But as, for Obico, we, we see these uh, uh, things as a great opportunity because as the China market becomes more and more open, the interaction and education from international investors also raised uh, ESG awareness of Chinese company. Things actually are changing rapidly. Some Chinese companies have become more and more acceptive in the ESG-related communications. So, um, yeah, so that's why we, we, we see this uh, great opportunity to to help educate these companies while we invest in them. You, you kind of mentioned that there was good opportunities for more active management of uh, equities in the China mainland, the onshore stuff. What do you think more active, man- greater active management helps to lead to greater ESG outcomes? Yeah, there are two elements uh, in our uh, Chinese strategy uh, for ESG investing. Uh, one, investing. one is the ESG integration, which means just uh, taking into account all the ESG analysis and uh, do uh, adjustment for the value drivers of the company so to help us with uh, uh, better uh, decision making. Now, active ownership, uh, including voting and engagement, is also an important pillar in our strategy. Uh, we have several ongoing engagement uh, cases with Chinese companies in our portfolio. The information from engagement is, is uh, always fed back into the investment process via active ownership profiles that are written by our specialists that can be used uh, by our uh, investment uh, te- teams when, the, uh, when, we, when we analyze the companies. But like I said, these kind of engagement are actually really open the doors of a communication to help us better understand the companies at the same time to to help the Chinese local companies to better understand what the uh, international investors are demanding. You know, for them, it's also uh, improving our process. And for both of us, it's a win-win situation, we see. 
just to finish off on, uh, I suppose we're, we're at the very start of a new decade, although it's a bit of a rocky start, to say the least. Uh, if, if we were to flash forward in sort of, I suppose, to 10 years' time, 2030, do you think the opportunities that you're seeing in the, the China equities markets, do you think that'll be fulfilled? Do you think we will have progressed quite a bit with more, I suppose, Western investment, Western and foreign investment in China? Um, yes, absolutely. I think uh, if you look at the Asia markets now, right, it's uh, hugely underinvested. And right now, uh, uh, only 4% of the market is uh, owned by foreign investors. Five years ago, that was 2%. Um, but if you look compared to other uh, markets like the US, it's 14%. Emerging markets, other emerging markets like Korea, is 36%, Taiwan, 40%. If you look at MSCI, and now have the included Asia with a 20% inclusion factor. Uh, with 100 inclusion factor, uh, that I think it will definitely happen within the 10 years time frame. And Asia will account for 25% of weighting uh, of the MSCI EM index. And the China's securitization rate is still low. The total market cap versus GDP is only 60%, by most of the developed markets is, is a more than 100%. So there's a huge potential uh, of growth for this market. You know, I, I strongly believe you know, the time to invest uh, Asia is, is right now. That's all for today's edition of the Super Talk podcast. A very big thank you to Jay Lu for his expertise and insight. And an additional thank you to Stephen Dennis, head of Rubico Australia, for his assistance in putting this episode together. The AIST Superannuation Conference, otherwise known as ASI, is coming up in September. The program is jam-packed with investment specialists and industry leaders from Australia and around the globe. For more information, head to aist.asn.au. Until next time, bye for now.